Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Catholic Lives, episode 10, The Night Prisoner. And we're doing our resuming our Catholic Lives series here on Controversies in Church History. I've done it about a year. Uh, Catholic Lives series, little mini biographies of Catholics who live interesting, if not necessarily exemplary lives, um, but lives that are worth knowing about uh, in, uh, in history. And tonight, uh, it deals with uh, someone, uh, an interesting figure from the Middle Ages. Let's get into this episode with the Night Prisoner. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, presuming you're an English speaker, probably, you probably know something about the figure of King Arthur. King Arthur, his court at Camelot, he was the great... uh, uh, king of the Middle Ages, legendary figure, got his sword Excalibur from the Lady of the Lake. We know that. Even if you haven't read any King Arthur stories, you've probably seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know about, probably know uh, tangentially about Merlin, the wizard who helps him become king um, at, when he uh, comes into his own, uh, takes the sword from the, that's uh, in the stone. You've probably seen stuff like this in your lifetimes or heard about it of how Merlin warns him against marrying uh, his love, Guinevere, who does eventually, of course, become his king, who, but unfortunately, of course, will eventually fall in love with uh, Sir Lancelot, who was one of his knights at, the, at, the, uh, at his court, where, of course, he assembles all the greatest knights of the realm in Britain, uh, Sir Lancelot, Sir Gawain, uh, Sir Percival, so on and so forth, knights of the round table. You've heard that probably at some point. Uh, mentions Sir Lancelot, of course, is the great, uh, the greatest of the knights. He's the greatest knight in the world for adventures and for fighting with his sword and all this stuff. Becomes part of his this uh, story. Also, of course, uh, winds up undermining, of course, the whole thing with by falling in love with the queen, who is his sort of uh, paramour. And then, by you probably have heard um, the story of the Holy Grail. Right, the Grail, the cup, the legendary—it's a legend—of um, the cup that uh, supposedly, you know, uh, Christ used uh, at the Last Supper, made its way to England uh, in, in medieval uh, legend uh, through Joseph of Arimathea, who actually uh, gets into uh, Arthurian legends. You probably know all this stuff. What you probably don't know is that all of this can be traced back to. Um, most of the stuff you're familiar with in the English-speaking world, uh, one version of these stories, because there are many of these stories in the Middle Ages. Uh, and that uh, story comes from a 15th century work called The Lord of Arthur uh, by Sir Thomas Mallory, um, who wrote this work uh, while he was in prison. Hence, he calls himself the Knight Prisoner in uh, his work. And so our life tonight is about Thomas Mallory and how he came to write this book and the tricky thing here is that scholars for a long time weren't exactly sure who Thomas Mallory was. And the reason being is that there are something like nine different Thomas Mallory's in the historical records in the 15th century that could have been the guy 
who wrote the book. However, uh, without, by the way, we don't have direct evidence of this, but without having done that, most scholars tend to agree at this point that uh, the Sir Thomas Mallory who wrote this book, we actually do know uh, who he was and have something of his life, uh, was a Sir Thomas Mallory, was a knight uh, whose estates were in a place called uh, New Bold Revel in Warwickshire. If you know what Warwickshire is, the county in England, what they call the West Midlands. It's in the center of the country. You can't miss it. Uh, Warwickshire is where Shakespeare will be from. Uh, born in Stratford upon Avon. That's where that's from. Uh, but he's uh, from this manor house, uh, New Bold Revel, which is not there anymore. The original house. The, there's one still there. The 18th century version that was built later on by another family. Uh, it's in use by the government for, I think, a prison or something at this point. But it's still there. But um, we think this is the man. And in fact, the name Mallory, uh, we mentioned there are nine people in the Middle Ages who had this name, in the 15th century had this name. The name goes back to the Norman Conquest, and it's almost certainly French. And in fact, the surname Mallory is a Norman French nickname, meaning unlucky. <laughs> so that's something that could have only been coined uh, after, the, after the, uh, the Norman Conquest of 1066. In any case, we know that his father, Sir John Mallory, uh, was active in the life of Warwickshire uh, uh, prior to his life, obviously, in the 1400s. His father served uh, five times as a member of parliament uh, in the 1400s, multiple times as sheriff uh, in Warwickshire, multiple times as a judge, justice of the peace, just to name a few different offices. He was widely uh, respected, obviously, and trusted to have these offices. He was also someone who, records indicate it, seems to have been fairly devout. One modern historian has noted, uh, has found evidence of a papal indult, which was granted to John Mallory, Sir John Mallory, and his wife, Philippa, in 1423, granted them to permission to have mass before daybreak on their estate. And again, you think about this, you know, what the evidence that means, it means they must have gone to mass daily which would have been tough for them because this is a fairly decent sized estate. They probably had 10 or more servants. You see he was a busy guy of all the things they had to do. The only way they could get to do it uh, on a place like that was before daybreak. So it's interesting to think about this in light of uh, his son's later life, which I'll get to in a moment. In addition to this, he had other relatives who were prominent in England in the 15th century, did Sir Thomas Mallory. Uh, another relative whose exact relationship we're not sure of, Sir Robert Mallory, was appointed prior of the Knights of St. John in 1432. The Knights of St. John is a, was a uh, crusading order, and uh, meaning one of those orders that was formed originally for the Crusades. Uh, and he served in that capacity, did Sir Robert, uh, until 1439. And in those seven years, he actually had at one point uh, the uh, responsibility of assembling a fleet to send to the islands of, island of Rhodes in the Mediterranean Ocean, where the Knights of St. John uh, held that territory to prepare for a Turkish, to head off a potential Turkish invasion. He actually took the fleet to Rhodes. The uh, Turks never showed up, um, but uh, it must have been something to know that if you were Thomas Mallory at the time, you had a, a relative who did such a thing. And then finally he had one other relative, John Mallory, again, maybe a cousin, we're not quite sure, who was also a member of the Knights Hospitaller, another one of these crusading orders that was still around after the Crusades. Uh, who was uh, active in the 60s, 1460s and 70s, and was also in Rhodes himself in 1469, when we think Sir Thomas Mallory wrote Le Morte de Arthur in prison. 
And so you have um, um, this fairly prominent family, uh, not, uh, not a great name, not a great family, as you'll see. And one of the things to note about this is that Sir John Mallory, as prominent as he was, doesn't seem to have been terribly wealthy. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is a possible explanation, as you can see, for, for Thomas Mallory's later life. They don't seem to have had that much money. And this is not that, uh, not that uncommon in the Middle Ages to have knights who had social standing, but not a whole lot of money. So now one of the things to talk about, okay, how does, how does he come into all this? How does he come into the historical record? Now, Thomas Mallory comes into the historical record, Thomas Mallory of Nouveau Rebel, um, through his, well, as you're gonna see, through the legal system, uh, because he got in trouble with the law. <laughs> uh, he was imprisoned multiple times. That's how we know about his life, actually. And one of the things to note how this happens is that, good to get some background here. If you know anything about, um, you know, medieval society, it's run on a, a, a feudal basis, feudalism as an economic system where you have people giving, you know, tenants on a manor giving their service to the, uh, to the local lord, uh, as well as knights swearing allegiance to their vassals in exchange for uh, land, those sorts of things. So it's both a political and economic system. Now, what happened toward the end of the Middle Ages in the 14th and 15th centuries, this began to, to be sort of eroded, this system of loyalties, this system of economics by a couple of things. One is, you know, you, you give your you give your allegiance to a lord primarily because he's there to protect you. That's why you do that. Uh, but with the invention, of course, of gunpowder and guns, that sort of shifted the basis of warfare, which began to make the knights less and less important over time. Other thing that happened, of course, major thing probably, was the invention, the creation of a money economy. Um, cash became more and more important than you know, giving things in kind, which was the original basis of feudalism as an economic system. Uh, and so you have that being sort of worn down this way. And so what happens is you have increasingly relationships shifting from hereditary, you know, tenure, you know, feudal relationships between lord and his servant to personal, financial, and even contractual obligations. A lot of times this would be made by contract by this period in which a retainer undertook to attend his lord whenever he was called for, suitably armed and equipped, in exchange for money, basically. And all this, by the way, coincides with the Hundred Years' War, which started in the 1330s, started by Edward III of England, who was trying to make good his, um, uh, his uh, claim on the uh, French throne. And so it's what precipitates this in some, some, uh, some regards. Now, what happens when uh, a term for this um, that historians give this, sometimes they give this this sort of modified system of feudalism, is called bastard feudalism because it used to be thought that it was a major cause of the breakdown of, you know, society in the late part of the Middle Ages. It's not thought that way anymore, but it could be problematic. And the reason why is this: when a magnate no longer had any money to give his retainers, sometimes he would give them liveries as a substitute. What is a livery? Livery is sort of like a piece of cloth or a badge or something like this that signify that you were you were the retainer of that noble lord. You were the you were his guy, right? And and this this became really popular. In fact, in fact, um, in some many cases, liveries were uh, as um, as prized, if not more so, than money. Now, how could that be, right? Is money better than everything else? Well, here's what people did with their liveries. Um, because these liveries meant that, okay, if you wear this, this retainer, your lord has to take care of you. Otherwise, he'll lose his reputation as someone who takes care of his retainers. 
So for give you for an example, what you might do is if you're the if you have a powerful lord on your side, let's say you get arrested, go for go for a jury of your peers in England, and you might go in there and wear that livery to signify to the jury, hey, if you don't give me the right verdict, my lord's gonna you know come and punish you. And this happened, we know this because there were complaints about this. Um, there, there were complaints in, in Parliament about this in the 1380s, uh, complaining about people um, trying to escape uh, justice in law courts, uh, the patrons of lords whose liveries they wore in these, uh, in these trials. And in fact, there were a series of laws passed by Parliament throughout the 13 and 1400s trying to sort of curb all this stuff. Again, historians debate you know, how big of a deal this was, mostly if you had a strong leadership at the top, if you had a strong king, he could put a stop to this sort of thing. So as long as you had a good king, a strong king, things were okay. Unfortunately, if you had a bad king or a weak king who really couldn't keep control of his great magnates, then you might fall into some serious, serious trouble. We'll get to this in a moment. This is exactly what happens. But this is all to keep in mind, this is what Thomas Mallory was. He was a knight who was a retainer of great lords. And in particular, as you get to the, uh, you know, he, he takes his, he comes of age in 1434. He's about 24 years old. But in the middle of the 1440s, you have a couple of um, major magnates fighting for control, primacy, if you like, in, um, in Warwickshire. One is a man named Richard Neville, who's from the north, um, but he becomes the Earl of Warwick in uh, 1446. Uh, he'll later on be known as the kingmaker for reasons of little apparent, uh, uh, who has rival for power is the Duke of Buckingham. And in particular, he must have been uh, Thomas Mallory on the side of, of uh, Richard Neville, because as you're going to see, he comes into conflict with the Duke of Buckingham fairly quickly by the end of the 1440s, even though at the same time he is still performing, and he does for the first part of his life, first 10, 15 years of his life, live the life apparently his father did. We have records of Thomas Mallory uh, serving in parliament several times. He serves as a sheriff, just to the peace. Um, he you know, does things like he witnesses, just a legal witness for marriages for relatives and stuff like this. But all this is gonna change in 1450, uh, as you're gonna see. Um, when, well, as you're gonna see, he turns to brigandage basically. <laughs> um, in 1450, um, for reasons we still don't quite, uh, don't understand, he um, he turns to a life of crime, apparently. With 26 men in that year, 1450, he ambushed the Duke of Buckingham and tried to kill him. Uh, he also stole livestock. Uh, he was accused of a lot of different things in, uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, legal documents. He's accused of rape, of raping the same woman twice. Uh, at one point, he led a small army of 100 men uh, and attacked an abbey called Combe Abbey, um, in, uh, in his area, terrifying the monks and stealing their money and valuables. Uh, and Mallory was arrested in 1452, probably on Buckingham's, um, Buckingham's uh, insistence and then thrown to jail. And he spends the next better part of the next eight to 10 years in prison. That's how we know about where he's at. Now, step back for a second, okay, what's, what's all this going on here? Well, one of the things that's in the background of all this, this bastard feudalism stuff, is of course the Wars of the Roses, in which uh, because you've had uh, a change of dynasties in 1399, the Duke of Lancaster overthrows the last Plantagenet king, Richard II, makes himself king, and kind of sets a bad president, obviously. He does okay. His son, Henry V, 
restarts the Hundred Years' War, takes over parts of France, marries a French princess, and he has a um, uh, a son, Henry the Sixth, who comes to the throne. Now, you remember when I said that bastard feudalism probably is not a big of a deal as, as long as you have a strong king. Uh, Henry the Sixth was a very pious guy. He was definitely known as a very devout Christian. Um, someone who was basically a decent human being, um, um, unlike a lot of his contemporaries. Unfortunately, he also inherited a disease from his mother. His French uh, mother uh, inherited a, the, uh, a disease from her father, the French king, uh, who had sort of lost his mind uh, periodically, uh, as would Henry VI. Several times during the 1450s and 1460s, he is incapacitated, and he will have to be, the government will have to fall into hands of People who, um, um, uh, well, uh, particularly someone who they'll uh, parliament will nominate, uh, Lord Protector, um, and so this means that the great magnates no longer have any um, have any incentive to restrain their subordinates. <laughs> People like uh, you see the image here. If you're watching the YouTube video, this is a picture image of Richard Neville, uh, Earl of Warwick, who gets involved in all this. He gets called the kingmaker because as you're going to see he's going to help a new claimant get on the throne in the 1460s. And the guy he helps get on the throne is Richard, the Duke of York, image of him in 1445, uh, who in the 1450s is actually um, um, uh, May Lord Protector. But uh, when in 14, uh, uh, 1455 Henry recovers from this, uh, Richard was not about to relinquish power, so you begin to have a civil war breakout. Uh, the first Battle of St. Albans take place in 1455. Um, eventually, in a few years later, um, uh, in the 14, uh, 1450, I think it's 1459, uh, or close to that, uh, Richard is actually killed. Eventually, by 1460, um, 1460, I mean 1462, um, they defeat, they manage to defeat uh, the forces of Edward, the Duke of York, the Lancastrian forces, they take control of the king uh, and establish their dynasty, and Edward IV will become king at that point. Now, again, one of the things to explain Mallory's behavior, just to give you an idea of just how widespread this brigandage is uh, during this period, I mentioned uh, that he was, um, uh, he attacked an abbey at one point. There were uh, monks that he terrorized. It turns out one of the one of the abbots that he was actually terrorizing at that monastery had himself been arrested for theft at one point in his time. Apparently, um, this was a time when a lot of subordinates of great lords went on uh, rampages, um, whether because they just wanted to, whether they needed money, we don't really know. Uh, we do know that the Lancastrians uh, thought of him as being a very dangerous prisoner. Uh, he spent most of the 1450s in prison, as I've mentioned, and he was put there and never put on trial. Uh, apparently, the Duke of uh, Duke of Buckingham didn't want to bring him to trial. I thought maybe they couldn't uh, convict him, so they just kept him there. And not only did they keep him there, um, Duke of York, when he was the protector in the 14th, Lord Protector in the 1450s, tried to issue a pardon to him that was dismissed uh, under suspicious circumstances. Uh, his jailers uh, at the various prisons he was in were threatened with extraordinary fines if he escaped, uh, over a thousand pounds. This is the Middle Ages, a thousand pounds for letting this guy escape. And he was twice bailed out of prison by Yorkist lords. Um, and he was moved around constantly several times for what looked like security reasons. And when you think about it, it makes sense because apparently in all the sort of dealings, all the accusations against him, Sir Thomas Malley must have been a very, very charismatic person because he had 
a um, an ability to summon up small numbers of men to go fight at a, at a very short notice. So that's one of the reasons why he was a kind of a dangerous dude, in other words, uh, uh, in uh, in the middle of all this. So yeah, he basically turns to being a thug. <laughs> uh, and in fact, that's one way you can describe the Wars of the Roses. It's kind of like gang warfare at a national level. The whole uh, idea of liveries kind of suggests that. In any case, when he's released finally in by 1462, he's fighting on York, Yorkist side under the protection of his, his uh, magnate, Earl of Warwick. He joins a campaign to retake several castles in the north for the Yorkists. However, a few years later, in later 1460s, he apparently, um, when his patron, the Earl of Warwick, switches sides, he gets tired of Edward IV. He will switch sides, and he will call uh, uh, follow him against going into the uh, the uh, the lists against Edward IV, uh, which we know because in 1468 Edward IV issues a pardon for Lancastrians uh, who had been uh, for Lancastrians, and he was specifically excluded from it in 1468. He'll also be excluded from another list in 1470. And so presumably he's back in prison by 1468, and he won't be free until 1470, because what happens in 1469 is that the Earl of Warwick, again, turns on Edward IV, uh, trying to overthrow him. It doesn't work. Uh, they wind up sort of patching things up. But in 1470, he finally makes common cause with the Lancastrians who were in France. He brings them over, and they defeat uh, uh, Edward in 1470 in October of that year. And that's when Mallory is finally released. And then he dies uh, five months later uh, in 1470. Uh, shortly thereafter, shortly after he dies, uh, Edward IV comes back, um, actually kills the Earl of Warwick in battle and retakes the throne. Uh, he had been held, uh, Thomas Mallory, up till then in uh, Newgate Prison. And that's where he was when he died. Um, mentioned uh, Edward the Duke of York, Edward the Fourth, the King of York, the Yorkist King, I should say. And uh, I mentioned he uh, uh, dies um, shortly after getting out of prison. He spent most of his time in 1469 and 70 in Newgate Prison. He's buried just across the road uh, at a place, ca uh, place called Greyfriars Newgate, which was the most fashionable church in London. Uh, and under a marble tombstone with an epitaph which described him as, quote, Thomas Mallory uh, Valens Miles, Thomas Mallory, uh, Thomas Malaria, whatever you pronounce it in Latin, but Thomas Mallory, Valiant Knight, uh, which uh, again uh, shows again what kind of charismatic person he must have been. But you might be thinking, I mean, this guy, well, you know, uh, this, this knight sounds like a kind of an awful person to a certain degree. We're not sure, by the way, all the accusations against them are actually true. We only have the accusations. We don't know um, exactly the background of all the accusations against him. Uh, but he seemed to have turned to a life of, you know, again, like almost pretty much brigandage and thuggery. And so how did he, when he was in this prison, this is where he wrote it in, uh, in Newgate Prison, uh, was buried in the, uh, the Greyfriars Church, or Greyfriars means a reference to Franciscans which uh, is no longer there today, it was actually destroyed. His tomb was actually destroyed uh, in 1538 when Henry VIII's Reformation uh, started taking things over. The church that's there today, Christ Church, uh, Greyfriars is abandoned. So later church uh, was abandoned after World War II. 
and all the damage that was done to it by uh, by German uh, German bombers. But it leaves us with that question: How did this guy, who was such a thug, write what may be the greatest work on you know nobility and chivalry uh, in all of literature? So a couple of things to note about this: um, He wrote this book while again while he was in prison. We only have uh, well the edition of it comes down to us. We only have a couple of manuscript copies. We think he finished it uh, by 14, into 1470 before he got out of prison. And then uh, it was later on, it was picked up by William Caxton, one of the first English printers, and uh, printed and published in 1485 with a preface by William Caxton. And uh, if I keep, William Caxton is actually one that gave the title, the Morta de Arthur, to it. Um, uh, um, Mallory's. Uh, title he gave the book was the whole book of uh, King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. And one of the things it needs explaining is, okay, how did he write this in prison? And, you know, what are prisons like in the Middle Ages? Well, they can be bad. <laughs> uh, they can be pretty awful. On the other hand, if you're of enough status, enough wealth, you can live pretty comfortably in prison. And this must have been the case with him in Newgate because he must have had access to a really killer library to write what he wrote. Uh, because the Lamorta to Arthur is basically a compendium and reshaping of the Arthurian tradition as it had come down to him from the 12th century, from Geoffrey of Monmouth, his history of Great, uh, history of Britain, uh, monument of the history of uh, kings of Great Britain, as well as the uh, French Romance tradition of Arthurian stories. And uh, in fact, Mallory in the book several times notes that he is uh, careful to have only consulted what he calls, quote unquote, the authorized books on the subject. And so he takes his source material and he creates this, you know, again, this overview of the whole story of, of King Arthur. It's written 21 books, covers the story uh, of, it, of the founding of Arthur's kingdom. You probably know the tale, won't go through it. The son of Uther Pendragon, who basically committed adultery to have, <laughs> uh, have Arthur. This happened several times. Actually, the two, two major figures in this are actually the result of adultery, or at least out of wedlock um, uh, sexual activity, uh, Arthur and Sir Galahad. But uh, founding of his kingdom, the institution of the round table, all the great adventures that he has, or Lancelot has, or Gawain has, all that good stuff. The quest for the Holy Grail, uh, which is of course part of the story, comes most likely from France, uh, ending with the death of Arthur and the fall of his kingdom. And it is meant to be this sort of epitome of the true knight. Um, the focus of the book is knighthood and chivalry. <clears throat> and so that first question, okay, how does this guy write this when he seemed to live a kind of less than chivalrous life? Well, one of the things I think is the key to it is something that kind of struck me and is the reason why I'm, I'm giving this, <laughs> recording this, is that a lot of modern scholars have interpreted, have seen in Lamorta Arthur, a mostly secular work, uh, which surprises me meaning they think it's mostly about knighthood and adventures. And it is, mostly it is them going on adventures and fighting and stuff like that. And that, that's really the heart of it, which again, in a way, yes, it's true, but it seems to me to miss what are the obvious signs, not just not signs, but the very strenuous Christian symbolism of the whole book. Now this is probably has to do with the fact that modern scholars recognize that certain elements of the story, the Grail, Excalibur, have pre-Christian roots. Um, stories of, of you know, magical cups go back to Celtic mythology, pre-Christian Celtic mythology. 
Uh, this may have uh, maybe partly to influence people like Sir James Fraser, if you know who that is. The writer wrote a work called The Golden Bough in the early part of the 20th century, which posited that all these sort of, you know, stories about, long story short, he basically posited that a lot of these stories that we think are Christian and books like um, Morton Morton and Arthur are actually, you know, pre basically pagan literary types. But however, that may be the case, the sheer wiping away of every Christian element from the story, I think, misses the point, because I think Christianity is very important to this, actually. And, you know, growing up, I, I you know, when I imbibed this Arthur story, it mostly came through secular sources. Um, the one I'm thinking of is the film Excalibur, if you haven't seen this, it's 1981. It's a good film by John Borman, but it strips away every single, almost every single Christian aspect in the story. It's completely pagan. It's basically uh, sort of like a uh, Richard Wagner uh, opera or something like this. And so what does it miss? And why does that explain, you know, the discrepancy between his life and that work and why it was what he did? We'll just give you a couple of examples from the, from the book. Um, sacraments play a huge role in the play, in the in the in the, uh, in the book, I should say. Uh, infants that were born out of wedlock or in in wedlock, such as Sir Galahad, are immediately baptized. That's important to these characters in the book. Uh, Sir Palamedes, who is a um, who's described as a Moor and therefore probably a Muslim, in the book, is told he cannot be saved um, by King Arthur at his court if he's not baptized, which he does eventually get baptized. Uh, characters go to mass throughout uh, the Morton to Arthur. Uh, but probably above all, penance plays a crucial role in, in many of the, the stories. The most crucial, of course, being the Grail story, because the knights have to purify themselves of their sins before they can go on that quest so they can see the Grail. And in fact, only Sir Galahad in the end is found worthy to do this because of his purity. At another point in the story, one of the knights going on adventures with a guy named Sir Bors. Uh, happens upon a priest uh, and then asks him to, uh, to give him confession, which he does. Uh, again, because he's trying to purify him. So all these things are, are scattered throughout this work. Um, plus, just the temporal framework of the Morton Arthur is framed in terms of the feast of the Christian calendar. Over and over again, he talks about how this happened uh, after, you know, two weeks after the Feast of Pentecost, or this happened after the Feast of Easter and stuff like this. Uh, so on, uh, on and on throughout the actual book. And then finally, just the, the way the, the book ends, um, at the end of the book, I'm not to spoil it for you if you haven't read it, um, Sir Lancelot and the remaining Knights of the Round Table uh, at the end of the work uh, all enter a hermitage and do penance for most of the rest of their lives. Lancelot actually dies there. Uh, in Mallory's version, uh, he actually has the remainder of the Knights go off to the Holy Land and fight the Turks before dying. Sort of, sort of coming back to that chivalric crusader idea, which you know he had relatives who did this. So, in effect, it is knighthood that's at the heart of this. But, 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 it is very much a Christian version of knighthood that um, that Mallory has. I think this is the key to understanding why a guy who acted like he did in the 1450s could write a book like this. Um, you know, however much you want to, you know talk about the pre-Christian roots of it, of knighthood and chivalry, which they do have them. Um, they were Christian ideals for Mallory. Uh, and in fact, the Christian church had made an effort to Christianize knighthood. That's partly what explains the Crusades. Um, these religious orders were meant to give, you know, a Christian role for guys who were otherwise pretty violent. 
And what role was that? You know, if you're a member of one of these, you know, crusading orders, you protect pilgrims, you protect widows, you protect orphans, you protect, you don't go out and bash people's heads in. It still happened a lot, but still, that was the ideal, right? Just as, by the way, the more secular ideal, the sort of ideal of chivalric love and, you know, sublimated love for a noble woman and all this stuff, they both had the same, um, the same goal in the Middle Ages, which was to soften the behavior of these sometimes unruly knights. And so what you get in the Morton Arthur is a summation of ideals of Christian knighthood and chivalry, which probably Mallory saw around him breaking down both historical forces, but also the deeds of, of men, his own contemporaries, himself, partly responsible for undermining this. And so one of his uh, modern uh, biographers actually suggested that perhaps it was a guilty conscience uh, that made him write this book. Perhaps he, um, perhaps he felt guilty for having abandoned Henry VI, who was, yes, lost his mind, but was otherwise a good and decent king. Um, there's definitely a sense in bringing more to the Arthur that uh, Mallory probably didn't like um, people like the Duke of York that much. He seemed to blame these overmighty magnates for causing a lot of these, uh, these problems by being disloyal to their Christian king. One last thing to note about Mallory is that we may miss this when you read the book, talking about the Christian element and if you're a modern scholar or something, perhaps because he was a layman, because in the book, it is very much a layman's idea of Christianity, a layman's idea of faith that you get, not a priest or a theologian's. Uh, and so it's very much a matter of that, a matter of the heart rather than the head. And in fact, as C.S. Lewis put it, the sort of Christian idea of Christian civilization that is, uh, you know, presented in the Morton to Arthur, here I'm quoting here, quote, is a civilization of the heart, <clears throat> a fineness and sensitivity, a voluntary rejection of all the uglier and more vulgar impulses. Uh, it makes the, uh, the Mort, the Mort to Arthur, the Mort, a noble as well as a joyous book, unquote. And so perhaps we can see this at book as an act of penance for for Sir Thomas Mallory's misdeeds. Uh, and that will explain, you know, why you know, the disconnect, he probably felt the disconnect. And at least if he couldn't live up to it, put forth this, you know, inspiring model of what it should have looked like, this idea of the Christian knight uh, toward the end of his life. And so I'll leave you with the last words of the Mortar to Arthur, which he comes to at the end of his book uh, as a sort of illustration of this uh, and of, uh, of his, uh, of his, Again, deeply flawed, obviously, Christian life, but sincere Christian beliefs. <clears throat> so here's the quotation. Here is the end of the book of King Arthur and of his noble knights of the round table, that when they were whole together, there was ever an hundred and forty. And here is the end of the death of Arthur. I pray you all, gentlemen and gentlewomen, that readeth this book of Arthur and his knights, from the beginning to the ending, pray for me while I am alive, that God send me good deliverance. And when I am dead, I pray you all pray for my soul. For this book was ended the ninth year of the reign of King Edward IV by Sir Thomas Mallory, knight, as Jesu help him for his great might, as he is the servant of Jesu, both day and night. <laughs>